0: Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Brian Ehrenworth. Brian is the president of Frameworth Sports Marketing, North America's leader in frame sports memorabilia based right here in Toronto. In addition to licensing agreements with pro sports leagues like the NHL, Frameworth also is the exclusive distributor of autographs for hockey superstars, including Sidney Crosby, John Tavares, Morgan Riley, and Jonathan Taves. In a previous life, Brian also owned the Gardoonies Sports Bar, right across the street from Maple Leaf Gardens, along with partners by the names of the killer, Dougie Gilmore, and the Bobcat, Bob McCowan. Welcome, Brian, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you, and how are you?
1: Well, we're here uh, on Caledonia at the office, uh, just uh, north of Lawrence, and uh, as I am pretty much every day of the week, I'm doing great just back from a little vacation at, uh, during the holidays, and, uh, and then it's back to the grind.
0: Excellent. Well, I want to jump right in. It said, Brian, that valuable collectibles or memorabilia are a combination of three things, a great player, a memorable moment with that item, and scarcity. You agree with that assessment?
1: Yeah, I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be a great player in terms of memorabilia. I mean, it, I always say, purchase or uh, acquire the things the players that you like so you might be a big fan of a fourth line guy that's a heavy hitter but um yes obviously the bigger the name the the bigger uh the appeal to most people you know and there's more speculation in those so you got somebody like Connor bedard coming into the league now and there's a lot of speculation on how good he will be and is this a good price right now to pay for it because it's going to you know, kind of escalate uh, and appreciate over time. So, you know, it's all personal preference. And I've always said, buy the things that you like first and uh, don't worry about making money off them. And uh, at least you have something that you appreciate.
0: That makes sense. And on that note, is memorabilia today truly memories and keepsakes? Or do buyers tend to think of it more as an investment, no different than investing in artwork or crypto or a gold bar?
1: There's both of those you know, the whole industry is driven by both factions. I think that in these days, there's a lot more speculation, like collecting stamps or coins, because they've seen the price of things go up drastically. We've seen um, things like Wayne Gretzky product that I used to exclusively uh, work with Wayne's company, WGA, before he moved on to uh, Upper Deck. And now those prices have gone through the roof so people that have seen that over the years and you know they're speculating on up-and-coming uh players like mcdavid or bedard or well in the back in the day crosby it's uh those prices have gone uh sky
0: high and so people have made good money on them now in 1992 brian you started framework sports marketing how did you first get into the business? Because you actually started as a picture frame company and not as a memorabilia company.
1: Yes, that's an interesting story because I started the company. I, I worked for my father. Then I went on to the, uh, he had a custom picture framing business catering to the art world and interior designers. When he retired and I went on to the restaurant business uh, back in 83 before I opened Gardunis, at had another one. Then I came back into the industry, Uh, started this company here in the same location in 92 on my own as a picture frame company. But I quickly found out that, and I use this example all the time, we would sell an interior designer uh, picture framing for a family photo that she was working on or he was working on, and uh, they'd charge $100 for the framing, which we thought was fair. But people, oh, wow, that's really expensive. But if I put a $15 Doug Gilmore autograph photo in there and charge $200, people thought, oh my God, what a steal that is. So I quickly pivoted to the uh, sports marketing and sports memorabilia business.
0: Well, I love that word pivot. And I love that name, Doug Gilmore, because Maple Leafs Doug Gilmore absolutely owned this town when he led the buds on that incredible 1993 playoff run. And you, Brian, found yourself on an outdoor patio at the Madison Pub in the Annex, with a pitcher of beer, a whole bunch of Hefspiller hockey sticks, and the man himself, Doug Gilmore. How did your framing his you pivot at that point and take off? How did you know about that? Are you Are talking to Dougie?
1: I mean, that I don't think he even remembers that. I'm looking at the photo of the four, four of us doing that. What, what a great memory. Keep in mind that I, at the time, uh, was a huge, and still am, obviously, uh, a huge... Uh, hockey fan, sports fan, so there was a fellow named uh, Steve Davies who owned Hespler Hockey Sticks, and he was the one that introduced, he came to me with some print that an artist had done of Doug Gilmore. Obviously, he was God in Toronto back in those days. How fortuitous to start a company at that time, but he said to me, Brian, um, you know, can you sell this print for me? frame it up and so I said look I can market that for you so we started marketing I became friends with Steve and then one day he says hey can we market some hockey sticks Doug's got some game used hockey sticks and I said wow that's great he invited me to sign them and of course in the middle of the afternoon on a day off uh, Dougie liked his pops so we ended up to the going to the Madison and sitting in the back patio and signing them. I got a photo in front of me I keep glancing at of that, and from there, Doug, it was not too long after. Oh, this was a summertime, so it was after the season, so it was okay that he was having some beers. And then from there, they they said, "Well, what do you uh, do? You want to join us at the uh, awards dinner where Dougie won his awards at the NHL awards dinner in Toronto?" So I have the photo right above that in my office is us sitting together with his uh, former wife and and family to to have him accept the award. Crazy business, Uh, great memories.
0: Crazy business, great memories, and you got a lot more. As alluded to, Brian, you have done a lot of work with Wayne Gretzky. How did your relationship begin with him as the result of the 94-95 lockout that actually caused that entire NHL season to be canceled?
1: That's an interesting question because after the lockout, I had a, a call from somebody that went to Europe with Wayne when Wayne took a a group of players over to Europe to play during the lockout and he had his 99 tour that they called it. And it was, if you remember, it was a red and white striped jersey with 99 on the front. When they got back, I got a call from this uh, good, who is now a good friend of mine, uh, Brad Jansen, who was with CCM. And he went on the tour with them and he convinced Wayne and Mike Barnett, Wayne's agent, that they should market that hockey jersey from that tournament which belonged to wayne it wasn't an nhl jersey and at the time we were uh, manufacturing stand-up acrylic sports uh, or jersey cabinets or cases kind of like a cereal box but clear all around and he said can you do something like this so i want to i want to do every one of those framed and there was 999 jerseys in the addition and, um, Brad said to me, I'll buy them all from me. I said, I don't want to do that for you because if they don't sell, you're going to be stuck with them. So I'll give you the same price for five or 10 at a time. And we, we did that case and that was good because they didn't sell out that edition. He would have been stuck for a lot of money. They did very well. And now they're really hard to find. From there, Brad said to me, you know, Wayne's starting up his own company. He moved away from upper deck at the time. He said, um. I think you should approach his brother-in-law, Mike Brown, who again became a good friend of mine, to do all the back end of Wayne's memorabilia. And that's how we really got to know Wayne. And and, um, and it's been a great relationship. Matter of fact, I'm going to see him this weekend in the All-Star game.
0: Excellent. And it's interesting, Brian, that your Gretzky partnership isn't just selling photos or jerseys. Talk about the fantasy camps you developed with the Great One, and, and how they provide something different than just a signed item.
1: Wow, that, that's a great story and a thrill for me. Um, Mike Brown, as I mentioned, was his brother-in-law. He's married to Janet's he was married to Janet's sister. And they were talking about Wayne and him were talking about putting together a fantasy camp. And Mike phoned me and said, "How can we help this? what, what can you do?" And I, I played a lot of pickup hockey back then. So I said, I'll tell you what I'll do. You give me, and I think at the time they were charging $9,999, go figure, I wonder where they got that number from, to join this camp. And I said, "Um, I'll trade you. I said, one thing that everybody would treasure is a picture with them in the equipment with Wayne Gretzky on the ice. And if, uh, if you could give them that, that would be huge for them. And I'll trade you that for a spot in the tournament. So we did that. Everybody loved it. It was a highlight. You know, you have that experience. But if you look around my office, I got memories galore. And that's what everybody's, hey, where did you get that? How did you get that? It's, it's kind of like bragging rights. So every year following for the next 15 years, we did that program with them. And it was a huge hit. And I think I'm one of two people that attended every every camp that uh, during that time frame. And those people are still good friends to this very day, Derek Mori, I can name them all. We get together from time to time when they're in Toronto. It's like a big, one big family. Even Wayne will get together with the guys. And there's one guy coming in this weekend, Fraser Neek from from Edmonton, just to to be with the group again. So it-, it was an incredible experience, and they treated you like a pro hockey player from the minute you walked into that camp. You had trainers and uh, equipment all given to you, and you got dinners with Wayne and all sorts of functions. It was just an incredible time.
0: That's just fabulous. That's a great experience. Uh, It's a fantasy. It's an experience over just a signed item. So I can see why it would have been so popular. Now, Brian, you once hitched a ride with Wayne Gretzky on his private jet to Phoenix. How did this come about and why have you vowed to never fly commercial again?
1: You've done your homework. I was down I was down at Wayne's restaurant when he was in town a couple of days before me and my buddies were going on a golf trip to Phoenix. We had done that every year for a number of years, called it the Boys Golf Association. And <laughs> Wayne was in town a couple of days before with his brother-in-law Mike. And, and so he said, come on down, let's have some lunch together. So we had lunch together and we were talking about it. And he said something about, um, so what's what's up with you? I saw him heading to Phoenix uh, for tomorrow for a couple of days with the boys in a golf tournament. He says, well, I'm heading back to Phoenix myself. He was based out of there at the time. And I said, yeah, well, that's great. And he said, uh, I've got a private jet. You want to join us? <laughs> and I went, are you kidding me? Said, sure. I'll, I've never flown private before. And so I ended up um, hopping a ride with him and giving up my commercial ticket to the chagrin of my buddies who I've never stopped hearing about how I dumped them for a private trip with Wayne Gretzky, but I didn't really care. Who, not, I said, is there any one of you that wouldn't take that opportunity? And, of course, um, none of them would
0: respond to that, but they still
1: grieved me over it.
0: I think it's pretty good. I agree. No, we would turn that down. Now, Brian, you have been the exclusive agent for the autograph of Sidney Crosby since he was only 15 years old. Talk about your business and personal relationship with Sid, no longer the kid, Crosby. Wow,
1: that's probably one of the biggest moments. I mean, getting Wayne Gretzky's work exclusively was the first one. Getting Sidney Crosby has been incredible experience for us ever since. And that was, again, if I had to write a book, I'd call it fortuitous, being in the right place at the right time with the right relationships. And I had a sports agent walk into my office one day. I knew basically he did a a lot of work. He was with IMG at the time, and he came into my office, and he said, Brian, would you like to um, handle one of my golfers? And I said, you know, Dan, his name is Dan Cimarroni. said, Dan, I don't know. I do most of my work in hockey. Uh, This is around 2000 and just uh, 2003. I said, I don't know what I can do in golf. I don't know if I have a market for it but I'm willing to give it a shot I said who's the guy I said, well he's a top Canadian golfer and uh, he's won one tournament up here to date and uh, I think he's going to be a real good one and being a golfer I kind of knew he was referring to as Mike Weir so I said well we'll give him a shot we shook hands on an exclusive deal two or three weeks later I'm watching the Masters and Mike wins it so I'm sitting there going, oh, my God, I just paid for a big screen TV. Now, <laughs> that was incredible. And then I got a call about a week after and saying uh, from Dan saying, uh, they want to meet you down at IMG, all the agents and that. And I thought, oh, here we go. They're going to screw me on this deal. I'm going to lose Mike Weir. We only had a handshake deal. And uh, I said, okay. I went down. And they were great. They just said, no, no, Brian. He said, no, we like your company. We think you can do a job for us. The only thing is now that he's won the masters, it's got to be a much bigger, broader deal, a little bit better structured, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, absolutely. So we talked that through for about an hour, some heavyweight guys that were there with IMG that that's an international sports management, Canadian division. And at the time, um, there was a bunch of people in that office, including a guy named Pat Brisson. And on the way, as we were getting ready to end the meeting, he said, by the way, Brian, um, are you interested in handling this up-and-coming player? He, he's going to be the next generational player. I think he even said, which Sidney doesn't like to be compared to anybody, but um, he's, he's going to be the next Wayne Gretzky. Now, how many times have I heard that before? And so I said, well okay, uh, who is he? And so it's Sidney Crosby. And he was going from Shattuck into Ramuski at the time. I said, um, I had basically just heard his name thrown around a little bit and talked about, but I really wasn't paying attention to players in that, uh, at that age group. So I said, but, but here I'm thinking, geez, maybe, maybe if I turn him down, it could cost me the Mike Weir deal. So I said, sure, uh, how much, what are you looking for? And they said, well, we want a $50,000 minimum guarantee against sales. Now, I still don't offer a lot of NHL players that in this day and age when I get an exclusive deal, but he was only going into Ramuski, not the NHL. But I was afraid I'd lose Mike Weir, so I said yes. Uh, Mike Weir was incredible for sales all that next year, did millions of dollars in business. Uh, Sidney Crosby, we were pushing it, but we managed to meet our guarantee even with him and Ramouski. Sidney's been with us ever since. We have a personal relationship. I, I'm very close friends. My wife and I are very close friends with his parents. They're great people. Albeit in the early stages, they were tough. They were protecting their son and rightly so. They didn't know me from Adam, but we've built a trust and relationship and um, I can't say enough good things about Sydney and his family. Uh, they're just salt-of-the-earth people.
0: Well, when you talk about a great business deal, Brian, it all comes down to the economic principles of supply and demand. Sid Crosby had significant accomplishments in a very tight timeline. In 2009, his Penguins won the Stanley Cup, and less than a year later, Crosby, of course, scored the golden goal at the 2010 Vancouver Olympics to win Canada the gold medal over Team USA. Would it be a huge understatement to say that Crosby autographed demand far outweighed supply after those two landmark events?
1: (laughs) No question. Um, That was one of the biggest moments that we've ever had in sports. Anything we could get our hands on was sold before we even brought it out. We did a canvas piece with a a very famous uh, sports artist out of the U.S. called Stephen Holland. Uh, he's done Muhammad Ali, he's done Gretzky, he's done all the big name guys. And we did we we launched a lot of problems. The biggest problem you have is he was in such big demand and Sydney's focus is always on hockey. So as much as he wanted to, you know, possibly sit back and enjoy the the moment, he was right back on the ice shortly after. So to get him to sit down and sign anywhere near what the demand was was really tough to do and, and rightly so. He was always focused, still is on his game. So we did an incredible amount of business, still sell that piece. You know, every time there's an anniversary date, even then people just want is one of the greatest, if not the greatest moment in Canadian sports history. We even have a piece with Wayne Gretzky, Paul Henderson, and Sidney Crosby as the three greatest goals and uh well it was Mario lemieux's goal, but it's, Wayne's passed it to him Uh, and that's one of our best-selling pieces of all time
0: well it is funny to look back and think that you had to take a chance on Sid Crosby to maintain your deal with Mike Weir of course success is a mix of hard work and timing so Brian you talked about signing Oakville golfer Mike Weir just two weeks before he won the Masters in 2003 when you fast forward to recent golf success I don't know if you had any partnerships with Canadian golfer Nick Taylor but I can only imagine the memorabilia opportunities after his dramatic overtime putt to win last year's Canadian Open. Well, you know we
1: don't have a direct relationship with Nick, but there's a fellow that's with Golf Canada now that I go back way back to when he was starting in, in as a sales rep for di- various companies in the sports world is uh, Lawrence Applebaum. Huh, go figure, and uh, uh, he's with Golf Canada now. Great guy, and he brought in all the, the flag and the scorecard for Nick, and we frame that up for him. So we do a lot of work for Golf Canada, but we don't have him as a as a, an exclusive player, albeit maybe we'll look into that. And the second part of that is uh, with Golf Canada, we are framing up a number of different things for them. And Mike Weir now is involved with the President's Cup again. So we, we've been talking to Mike about how we can get more involved uh, there with gifting and different items and things that they can market from the memorabilia side as well.
0: Now, Brian, with you being an expert in the memorabilia industry, I have to ask you about the champagne bottle that Adam Hadwin was spraying in celebration when he got tackled by that security guard. Is that a hottest <laughs> item from the Canadian Open?
1: Yeah, you know what? I don't know where that ended up, but if somebody got their hands on it and if it was signed by, by Nick or Adam, that, that would be a big, big deal. You know, anything that's one of a kind is a big collectible. I'm looking at game-use sticks from Sydney. I'm looking at trophies that might be one-of-a-kind, um, game-use pucks, things that are part of that general where there is multiple releases. And even a lot of the stuff that we're doing now, we're trying to limit to limited edition pieces so that there are not tons of things out there over and over where the price, we want to give people a chance to You know, at least maintain the value or increase the value, appreciate the value of the pieces that they have. The one of a kinds, that's the biggest thing.
0: Now, Brian, let's go back in time because you had a parallel career in the restaurant business. One day in the 90s, you were making a stop for your framework business at Maple Leaf Gardens. And what caught your eye directly across the street from the gardens on Carlton Street?
1: Well, I think part of what makes a business grow is you, you know, I keep trying to tell this to my Uh, existing new sales people is you've got to be aggressive and you've got to see something and and create ideas. Being a sports fan, I knew Maple Leaf Gardens by going to those games. I could go into the gardens and I would see framing all over the place. And I said, they've got to be framing stuff. What about framing a player's first goal or, or things for around the office? So I used to drive down and back in the day in 92, when there wasn't, the city wasn't overwhelmed with traffic, I used to literally park right in front of Maple Leaf Gardens, leave my car there, walk in for an hour, talk to Stano um, Stan Obodiac, who was the publicity guy, or Bill Clough, or even Harold Ballard at the time, and, and do framing for them. And I leave my car out front. And one day I pull up and I look across the street, and there's a, re- a restaurant right across the street that was uh, vacant. I guess it went out of business. And I thought, oh my God. A restaurant across the street from Maple Leaf Gardens has got to be a home run. At that point, I had already had a restaurant that was pretty successful. And I said, you know what? This would be a great thing if I could get a player or some celebrities to partner with me on it. That would just be a no-brainer. Across from Maple Leaf Gardens, you know you're going to be busy a couple of nights a week, jam-packed. All the other nights, if you made it a destination place, you could do well. So I looked at it. I called a friend of mine who was in real estate. He says, it's available. I phoned up a friend of mine who uh, at the time still is, Bob McCowan. And I said, look, I want to try and get a couple of guys together. I had the relationship with Doug Gilmore. I phoned them. Are you interested? He was interested. And so that combination of players and celebrities, and, and to Bob was probably the biggest name in sports radio at the time. Keeping in mind, I think they started fan radio in 92 as well. So it was a pretty good time all around. Doug Gilmore here, Blake, Jay's winning. Great time to start a sports business. And we opened Gardoonies, and uh, it, was, it was pretty surreal. The opening party was, was crazy.
0: Talk about great timing. I agree with that assessment. It's got to be a no-brainer for a sports bar right across the street from Maple Leaf Gardens. 1993 was, of course, the greatest Leafs playoff run in modern times, although shockingly, that's now over 30 years ago, led by Doug Gilmore, Wendell Clark, Dave Anderchuk, Felix Puttman, and of course, Nikolai Borchewski. Ryan, talk about the time. It must have been absolutely awesome to be running Guardiani sports bar at that time.
1: You know, I look back. I get goosebumps thinking about it. And, um, you know, I just watched something on TV about Alexander Dagg, a documentary, and I went through all of that. But to have a sports bar involved with Doug Gilmore, we built it from scratch. I, it's something I do. Is, I worked out the interior. I'm not an interior designer, but I'd, I'd go around different bars and restaurants and say, well, I like this, this works, and I like that, that works. And we put it together. Doug was so proud of the place um, and Bob McCaw. Doug had to back out of the place about six or eight months later because he was signing a new contract. And part of the contract was all the marketing under his contract belonged to the, the Maple Leafs. So they deemed the restaurant as marketing, which was kind of crap. But anyway, that was fine. But Doug remained friends for years to come and Bob McCowan was part of it as well. We had an opening party that the opening night was pretty cool. It's a great story goes behind that. Doug was God in Toronto at the time. I mean, he was was the resurgence of the Leafs and all that, and he was right at the forefront. So I'm trying to get all these celebrities. I wanted the biggest opening party we could get, and I would leave messages for the Bare Naked Ladies management, who were really hot at the time, and all the media celebrities and and owners of teams and all that. And, you know, I'd leave a message, never get a call back. And then I figured it out. I would make the call and say, I'd like to speak to so-and-so. And And they'd say, okay, can you leave a message? And I said, yeah, this is Doug Gilmore. And um, I just wanted to invite them to our opening party at Garduni's, a new restaurant that I'm opening. And I gave them the number. And then within 10 minutes, I get the call back. And I pick up the phone and say, "Oh no, Doug just left, but he wanted me to invite you to the opening." And we had the greatest opening party. We had the bare naked ladies, and they got up on stage and sang. Even Dougie and uh, got up on stage with Wendell. They sang for us. We had Bob McCawley do his show on the fan from the restaurant, and you name it. We had owners of hockey teams. We had every. Uh, we had other players, and I mean, I look back at that party was was just amazing and since then after that we were doing wrestling events before the anything that happened at at the gardens like big wwe wrestling we had the undertaker come for a pre pre pre-game thing at the restaurant we had one night with meatloaf before a concert just just a, a fun fun time that said my business started to take off in a big way so I handed the restaurant over to my brother, Alan, who did an incredible job out of that restaurant uh, running it. But another interesting story is it was one of he was one of my biggest customers at the time because we had all sports memorabilia on the wall and all these people would come in for the game. And there was nothing like it at the time. I mean, we were we took our framing and interior design business and made memorabilia look really sexy and it was on the wall. And people would come in and say, how do I get one of those? And he would take orders. And he was doing more business than some of my biggest customers in retail stores like, uh, well, whoever it was at the time. I forget Sports Check and all those guys. But he was selling maybe $100,000 worth of memorabilia out of the restaurant alone. So it it was crazy.
0: That's incredible. And, of course, Brian, this was before Gretzky's Restaurant Downtown, which, of course, had all that great memorabilia on their walls. You know what, it's funny because
1: 92, 93 was an incredible year. Tom Bitov and Wayne opened their restaurant at the same time. So now I'm thinking, oh, we're competing with Wayne Gretzky. Competing with Wayne Gretzky is actually something I just thought about because we were talking about Sidney Crosby and getting Sidney. And then they opened the restaurant at the same time. But at the time that we got Sidney Crosby, uh, the Heritage game, the first Heritage game, yeah, I it was heritage game out in Edmonton, and I was out there, and uh, Wayne was playing in the alumni game, that, that big game at the stadium outdoors, if you recall. And we were at the same hotel, and I was having a breakfast with his brother-in-law, Mike, and Wayne came down and said, can I join you? I said, no, Wayne, we're busy. No, I said, absolutely. So Wayne sat down with us, and we started talking. Or he said to Mike, he, Sidney Crosby's name came up. And it turned out that Wayne, his company, WGA, was making a bid for Sidney Crosby at the time. I guess Wayne knew a little bit more about him than I did. And I was talking to his brother, brother brother-in-law, and he said, uh, and I told him that we had just signed a deal with Sidney right after that. So Wayne asked his brother, by the way, whatever happened to Sidney Crosby, that deal we were offering him? And tail between his legs, Mike said, well, Brian's got the deal. And I was doing Wayne's stuff exclusively at the time. And he said, really? He said, do you mind me asking what you, what you paid to do that? And I said, well, it was 50000 He says, well, good luck with that. that. That was Wayne, okay? So a little later in uh, the next year, we're at the fantasy camp. And at night, Wayne was coaching in Phoenix and doing the fantasy camp right after practice with the, with the NHL team. And then that night we went to the game, and we're standing in Wayne's box, and we're watching Sidney play. And so Wayne standing next to me, and he says, "Sidney Crosby's quite a player, eh?" And I said, "Yeah." He says, "I guess you were right, and I was wrong." And I went, "Wow." <laughs> it, I picked up, I picked up Sidney, and he didn't make the same offers. And, and and he said to me, "I guess, I guess you were right on that one." And uh, it's a great story that I've always had. I always kid him about that.
0: That is great. Great great to have one on him, <laughs> for sure. If you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview, please check out the more than 200 additional episodes available anytime. we got Chef Sussur Lee, Body Breaks Hal Johnson, Comedian Paul Reiser, Michael Pinball Clemens, our UN Ambassador Bob Ray, Maple Leafs Captain Rick Vive, Dragon's Den's Wes Hall, and TVO's Steve Pakin. How they did it directly from the Toronto Legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7-365, wherever you get your podcasts. Or go to torontalegends.ca. Now, Brian, with your expertise in this industry, I want to ask you about a bunch of different issues and questions. Game used versus signed. What is most important, or are they both necessary for maximum value? Uh, That's a
1: good question, because Sydney sends me all of his game used sticks. Not all of them I'll give some away to fans and things like that, but we market the sticks for them and we do, you know, we don't put them all out at the same time, but, you know, depending on the stick. So the first factor is it's game used and we can prove that. And at this day and age, we make sure that they, there's companies out there. We have one expert that specializes in Pittsburgh photo matching the stick. So even though Sydney, and there's another story when he was 15 years old, I said to Sydney on the first signing we did, I said, by the way, who owns your equipment? And typically the team does, sticks and equipment. Sydney was smart enough, or his his management was smart enough to say that they wanted to buy their own equipment and they own their own equipment. So everything that Sydney has belongs to him, not the team. And so he would put away all his... So I didn't realize about a year later, or no, two years later, I get a call from Dana Hines, who was the trainer at the time, saying, you think you can get down here? And I said, what for it? He said, well, bring the truck. He says, I've got one of those big four by four towel bins filled with Sidney Crosby sticks and blades and whatever that he's kept. And each one of those was dated. So going back to those, Sidney has been dating the sticks uh, or the trainer has when he pulls them from the game, which makes it great. I did run into one problem where the trainer put was a day off on the date and so we marketed it as a game you stick and then some you know big fan said well wait a second he never played that game that day it was the next day he played so from that point on we had it photo matched and literally they can tell by a nick in the stick and whatever that it's photo matched so having the authenticity that fine-tuned is one of the biggest things what he did with that stick is another huge factor. Did he score a goal? Did he get an assist? Was it a record-breaking game? Obviously, a lot of those sticks, Sidney tucks away. He doesn't sell them. If it was crucial, it was a playoff, um, he'll keep those for himself for posterity uh, or maybe the Hall of Fame one day, but right now we're tucking him away. But if it's just a, a regular game with a goal or two or a couple of goals, that is a big driving force. What we have found, though, is... I was always playing with the idea, should we autograph them too? And so we test the waters and we do find that we get a little bit more for the autograph version of that stick than the other. But some real true collectors don't want to see an autograph on a game used stick. So it's personal preference, I think.
0: When you talked a little about scarcity, I would think that death drives business because ultimately death equals item scarcity. For example, because of his passing, there will never be any additional Boreasalming autographs. Is athlete or celebrity death a huge driver in the memorabilia market? Wow, um,
1: that's a double-edged sword, and here's the reason why over the years when I first started, you know, names like Johnny Bauer and John Bellavo and all those guys were big, big name guys that everybody knew, you know, back in the '90s they were the big stars or the big retired stars. And depends on what the guys did. For instance, Johnny Bauer was such a beautiful man, and he just wanted to sign for anybody, and he, and he didn't care that much about the money. He had a fee for it, for the most part, less it a charity. And he would sign everything at 10 or $15 a piece for the, for the wholesalers like myself. And there's thousands of those things in the market. The market still has thousands. I had a conversation with Jean Beliveau years ago when I needed product from him, and he told me what his fee was. And I said, "John, I'm going to shoot myself in the foot, but do you like signing? And he said, well, I don't mind. I can do it, you know, and I'm retired, so I have time, but I don't, I don't want to sign millions of things. And I said, then why are you signing so cheap? And he said, what do you mean? And I said, if you sign a thousand pieces a year and you're prepared to do that, you're not going to lose one sale if you double your price right now. And he said, Really? And I said, Just test the waters. He got some bad advice from people in Montreal because they wanted to buy as much as they could for cheap. That wasn't our thing. You know, um, if I could get the money at the other end, then why not pay, pay the player what he deserves? And so he did that. But Johnny Bauer said, No, I, that doesn't, I just want to keep signing. So that's all part of it. Now, to answer the, the question, if, you, if the player passed away, whenever somebody passed away, depending on who it was, I would immediately stop sales until I figured out what the new mar- market value would be. And that isn't necessarily something that uh, is to this day, like Borea Salming is a good example. We, I think, did the last signing with him when he, when he was sick, and I didn't want to do it, but Daryl Sittler called me and said, he's going up to Montreal because Borea's quietly in town for some medical treatments. And he wants to stay busy. Do you want to do a signing? I said, are you sure? Because I don't want to bother him. He said, no, no, he'd really appreciate that. So we did the last signing. And so we had quite a bit of Borea Salming product, but I was really surprised when he passed away that the value didn't go through the roof on this stuff. And that's primarily because Borea was very available to do signings all that time, as Johnny Bauer was. So it really comes down to, I have some Joe DiMaggio stuff that I Have tucked away. And of course, when Mickey Mantle, those guys that didn't sign a lot or wasn't part of the main culture, it's all supply and demand. If there's a lot out there, then the price will go up. And if there isn't out there, then... uh, So I would say if you're looking to, to buy something, buy, as we discussed, one of a kind, limited editions or rare products if you're looking to make money at it.
0: Well, that makes sense. And let's talk a little about the mechanics of actual signing. Ryan, how productive can an athlete be in one signing session? Can they pump out 100 items, 500, 1,000?
1: Well, I'll tell you what. I take very great pride in my staff and how organized they are over the last number of years. I'll give you an example. Nathan McKinnon came to town. He was one of our exclusive guys for a while, and, and then he decided that he'd open up and do some signing. So he went from one company to, another, to our company to do a signing when he was in town. He almost walked out on the other company because they were so unorganized. uh, It took forever to get two or 300 pieces signed. He was there for about, I was told, I'm hearing this secondhand, two hours, three hours to do it. And he almost didn't show up at ours because he was tired of signing. But he came to ours. We got 450 pieces signed in about 45 minutes. And it's all organization. My guys are the best in the industry. Every athlete that we deal with that deals with multiple guys say, wow, this went so smooth. And it really comes down to mixing the product up so that the hard-to-sign pieces are done and then they move on to easy signed pieces while they tuck the other ones away. Keep in mind, when you're doing a signing, you want to get as many things signed and not take the athlete's time away from them because they don't particularly like signing. You also have to worry about smudging the autograph. So you can't stack them on top of each other. They got to be layered properly. So we take two or three people to each signing. And I usually like to attend just to supervise. Things got to be moved around quickly, efficiently, and not smudged. And we do an amazing job. So you can get in an hour, if you got a good organization, three to 500 pieces signed, depending on the player. Sydney takes a lot longer, not a lot longer, but he's got a beautiful a flowing autograph you can actually read some of the letters and then you got other players that are just a couple of strokes and it's over and they put their number there so otherwise you'd never know who it was and it depends that the old school guys sign, and this goes back to bobby hall and jean beliveau but bobby hall used to give all the young players shit because he would say to them if you can't read your autograph then why even bother and he'd make sure, and all the old veteran alumni players said, "Bobby told me this. Bobby was the one that made me sign my name properly." This day and age, it's a business, so the players don't take the time to sign it right. Uh, they don't like to sign it. They don't need the money. They know it's a a means to an end. And if they don't sign, then they're just all fake stuff out there, anyways. So a lot of the players don't, you know, they rush through it. Some of the players like Sidney's always had a really nice autograph and people are very picky about his autograph because we charge top dollar for it.
0: And, uh, to be fair to the signers, it's clearly a lot easier if you're signing Bobby Hall than if you're signing Nikita Kucherov. (laughs) A little bit longer,
1: right? Bobby, there's some great stories about Bobby and, and his autograph and, uh, I did a signing. Bobby liked a few glasses of wine, and he did a signing here one morning at 11 11 in the morning, and then we uh, about halfway through the signing. He said, Brian, do you have any red wine? And I said, well, I think I got a bottle in my office. He said, well, let's open it up. So we opened it up. By the end of the signing, the bottle was gone, and uh, we had so much fun. And then we went over to, he said, let's go for lunch. So we went over to a place called Shoeless Joe's around the corner, a sports bar, walk in with Bobby Hall and everybody was gaga over that and we sat there for a couple of hours and of course another bottle of wine went then at the end of the thing I said Bobby where are you going after this and he said I got to drive to Kingston I said really? I said well you're not driving to Kingston I said if you need to be there I'll get you a car a service to take you there not that I wanted to pay for a car service I'll put you up in a hotel or you're welcome to stay at my place so he said okay let's go to your place so Bobby Hall came to my place for dinner I was in awe my kids were in awe my wife scrambled to go out and get some steaks I said uh, we got guests for dinner what guests I said Bobby Hall oh my god and she's running around to get to get a nice dinner prepared and we sat there and he let the kids try on his Stanley Cup ring and but Bobby would sit in that restaurant and sign for anybody that walked over the table he just loved loved his fan base and he was, he was just a sweetheart of a man too.
0: Brian, I got one more for you on the mechanics of signing. Personalizing an item to a particular recipient, as opposed to simply signing their names, does personalization enhance or ruin the item value? Personalization is really for the
1: person involved. I would say it really takes away the resale value, obviously, because if your name's Joe, you're not selling it to anybody else but a Joe. But a lot of people want it personalized. In fact, We have a premium if you want Sydney because we've never had send-ins for Sydney. And the reason for that is that by doing that, we can control the marketplace, make sure that things aren't, like if you have a signed puck or things, we know that if we're bringing out a Ramouski jersey, then we're the only ones that had it. We're not sending it. One day that might change, but right now, and there's a lot of demand for it, but we, we control the marketplace. Personalizations is something that we might do, but we, you know, we, once, maybe once a month, we'll, we'll uh, let people bid on a personalization for something that they own. But that's the real fan that really just loves Sidney Crosby and wants something personalized. It really diminishes and takes away from any resale value. So if you want it resold one day, you don't get it personalized.
0: Now, Brian, you, of course, started Framework before the internet even existed, how has e-commerce changed your business? I noticed that you are a Shopify retailer. Man,
1: I'll tell you what, and I'm an old school guy. When I started with my dad's company years ago, our sales technique was open the yellow. I just talked to a sales rep this morning and said, I told him this story. I said, when we started, I opened the the yellow pages and looked for the biggest ads and that's who I would phone. And he said, what's the yellow pages? <laughs> so I bas- basically the white pages and the yellow pages were phone books right and i'm trying to show him i hire him now just to work on approaching instagram uh groups um facebook groups etc that's special there's wayne uh Sidney crosby memorabilia collectors and all they do is collect Sidney crosby and i ran into these guys by you know just playing around on facebook which is I'm an old school guy, so I never really got into that. And then one of the questions to join the group was, who is the exclusive distributor of Sidney Crosby? And I went, oh my God, that's me, (laughs) Frameworth. So I joined the group and we've had a great relationship. I offer them special deals. So I said, we should expand that. Here's an interesting story because back 10 or 12 years ago where we were selling big box stores like Pro Hockey Life and Canadian Tire, we would sell them various kinds of memorabilia. And if we had our website and undercut their price, so we would put our suggested retail up there. But if we had a sale one weekend, they would say, hey, you're undercutting our prices. Uh, we're going to pull all the product from our stores if you don't maintain your retail pricing. That was something that put a lot of pressure on us because they were big accounts. And so we are a little late really pushing the internet because i was afraid of losing those big accounts but at christmas time we had two different sales boxing day sale and and a christmas sale and those two days on the internet were dwarfed any customer that we ever had in brick and mortar in two days like the biggest accounts that we've had in the in the brick and mortar retail stores so we just decided that the way the world works now, we're not going to be beholden. We still sell a lot of the stores, but they understand now that they can't put that kind of pressure on us because nobody will agree to that. The internet, obviously, I always joke uh, years ago is the internet's going to be really big one day, and um, yeah, so it's uh, it's our probably our biggest source of of sales, and I'm really putting a big push on now to get fo- more followers on Instagram. I joke with my staff. I said, my daughter. Or my son's girlfriend has a dog, and she has an Instagram account. We've got Sidney Crosby. We've got seven thousand followers on Instagram. She's got a dog. She's got quarter million followers on Instagram. So I've been doing a little research on how do we get things to go more viral and more followers because I, you know it's a numbers game. The more you have, the more business you you can do. So. We're just playing around with that right now. It's, it's interesting because I'm an old school guy and I'm learning a lot, but I'm pretty aggressive and I don't never like to take a backseat to anybody.
0: What a changing world. There's always something new to learn in the marketplace. Now, Brian, the Ultimate Leafs fan, Mike Wilson, is a former guest of this podcast. And about five years ago, he sold $2 million worth of his collection to the Museum of Canadian History in Gatineau. At the time, this was the largest private stock of sports memorabilia ever sold in Canada and included the original door to the Maple Leafs dressing room from Maple Leaf Gardens and Wayne Gretzky's contract when he appeared as the guest host on Saturday Night Live. Brian, any interactions or relationship with the ultimate Leafs fan, Mike Wilson?
1: Mike is a very good friend of mine. and a matter of fact, when he was setting up his basement, he came to me, uh, we, we do all his framing for all of his memorabilia and he went when they closed the gardens he bought a large part of that collection and then he set up basically a museum in his basement we had a gentleman working for us for a number of years that moved on to the uh hockey hall of fame and helped them with their displays and that so i put mike in touch with that fellow who ended up i'm drawing a blank on his name but got bieber Anyway, so he worked with Mike to set up his whole basement and Mike just began collecting and then he ended up having you know functions in his basement. He had Wayne there one time, he had Bobby Orr there and we still stay in touch. Mike comes up here actually into the music side of things as well. Uh, So Mike, when he retired from uh, the securities business, just kept going and, and followed his passion. Great guy, great collection and we still are very good friends to this very day.
0: The Little Beaver Hall of Famer Marcel Dion had a very cool sports memorabilia store connected to his now dearly departed Blue Line Diner in Niagara Falls. Ryan, have you done any work with Marcel Dion, and would that store's memorabilia inventory have been supplied by you? A lot of it.
1: Uh, we would have helped him with the framing, et cetera, et cetera. Marcel is a—he's a character, and he's been around. He still is. He still even goes to these um, sports card shows. At least a couple of years ago, I saw him with his own booth. Now, I don't think he's still doing that. I think he's had enough of it, but he had a great store and they used to have functions there and hot stove dinners and, and uh, events. You know, I always say Marcel Dion was one of the greatest players to play the game. Um, and you talk about opportunities and where you end up. And I use him as an example because as one of the greatest players to play the game, if he didn't play in L.A. and played in Montreal, he would have been down with all the greatest players that you mention all the time because Montreal was that big fan base, not to take anything away from Marcel or his playing. Like I said, he's one of the greatest of all time. But the marketplace is huge. And so that goes down to Sidney Crosby landing in Pittsburgh versus San Jose was massive. Obviously, is a Montreal player where he originally wanted to go because his dad was drafted there. But Pittsburgh has been his home, and he's loved it there ever since. And it's an East Coast team, and all the highlights are on an East Coast time, where the biggest fan base is is crucial. We have drafted so back through the years, we've we've you know you have to get in early. So if you get a player like Connor Bedard, uh, who's handled by a competitor right now, if he ever went to San Jose, he'd still be big. But the marketing opportunities would be nothing like they are in Chicago. We, we drafted, and that's a chance you take because you got to get in early and guarantee the money before you even know where they're going to. So we had Pat Kane and Jonathan Taves coming to us directly before we knew what team they were drafted. Ending up in Chicago, wow, what a gold mine. New York, Philly, Toronto, obviously. Toronto, Montreal are probably the two biggest with Chicago and Pittsburgh now are the biggest markets but if you go to San Jose or we had Kopitar one of the greatest players in the game still is goes to LA can't sell anything Steve Stamkos goes to Tampa when he first got drafted we had him exclusively couldn't sell a thing Um, because the market's all up here He, he certainly developed the market down there over the years and obviously Steve is is a great player now and still um and still sells a ton of product but we couldn't sell him for the first two or three years. I had to get out of that contract. So going back to Marcel, it was unfortunate uh, that he ended up playing on the West Coast when he could have been one of the best marketing, uh, marketable players that had ever come out of the game, especially
0: a number of years back. But that's the way it goes. Now, Brian, some people say you are better off not to meet your heroes because it has the potential to be a real disappointment. And you've, of course, interacted with a ton of celebrities and well-known athletes. So I'm going to ask you for both the good and the bad. Firstly, who have you met in person who really blew you away and exceeded your expectations?
1: Well, obviously, Wayne. Gentleman, I mean, he's hard to get, to get his trust. And, and most players are. So, but do they... Your first reaction to them, your first meeting with them, is it a good one? Yes. Amazing. I mean, you're just in awe, so it's hard to even talk to them because you're you're still like umming and awing and, and trying to get to know them. Sydney, all those. Players. Jonathan Taves, what a great, great guy. Carey Price, amazing. I have to say in general, hockey players. I I don't know exactly why, but I think it's that family situation where the you know to get to where they are their family people their their dads and moms are taking them to the rink at 6 in the morning they have so much respect for other people they idolize the guys that that are ahead of them and i just saw a video from Wayne Gretzky who was saying you got to carry the torch and basically what he's saying was we had an obligation as the top players in the game to be responsible for the for the game to to be ambassadors for the game and he said The next step was, well, then Sidney Crosby and Alex Ovechkin come along and they understand that and they take the torch and they go from there and then they pass that on to hopefully the Bedards and that. So it was great. But then I've had some experiences with guys that are, uh, you know, sometimes it's more about the money than the relationship. You know, we've had exclusive deals and I'm not going to mention names, but I've had a couple of exclusive deals where. I think I'm the only one with the product and I market the product that way because when you know you have an exclusive deal, you can say, I've got a limited edition of this or this is a set price. And then I'll get a phone call that this guy's up in Montreal. Do you want any product? I said, what do you mean any product? It's He's exclusive with me. Oh, well, some guy approached him in an elevator apparently and he just did a big signing under the table for him thinking that maybe I wouldn't find out or they didn't care. Um, that's really disappointing, uh, and that's happened to me a number of times. But, but for the most part, no. So are these people quality people? I think they're they're great players. I don't think they maybe understand the implications of the contract and, and the commitment that they made. I mean, we take a big chance on players when we sign them. I know we signed uh, Joe Thornton to a deal when he was first going to Boston not first going, but when, you know, an exclusive deal. We went down to do a signing with Joe, bought about $15,000 worth of product. And within a month, he got traded to San Jose on not great terms. And there we are stuck with $15,000 worth of Joe Thornton stuff. No fault of Joe's, but that's part of the game. I'm stuck with the product. I got to figure out what to do. Nobody wanted it because the Boston players didn't want it. And San Jose didn't want Boston product. And that's part of the game that we play. So you you deal with that, and you're honorable, and we don't ask for our money back when somebody gets traded. So you would hope that the players, in return, honor their deal. It's, and it for the most part they do for a big percentage of the players. The odd one doesn't, and so those are disappointing situations. The other kind of issues that we had actually outside of hockey, we did a signing with an exclusive signing with with one of the. Uh, raptors back in the day with big big star again not mentioning names but read between the lines it was the biggest star back in the day and we did a signing with him he walked into the boardroom looking at his phone never acknowledged anybody in the room kept taking phone calls while he was signing stopping the signing you know it was he was hard pressed to shake hands on the way out the door not that i need to have these guys you know be Accommodating or whatever. But well, accommodating, yes, but they don't need to love us. They just need to be respectful of our position. And so, a couple of those situations. But for the most part, the Blue Jays that we work with, Alec Manoa and Kevin Kiermeyer and the players that we have, beautiful people. And Kevin Gosman, really nice, accommodating people. So, for the most part, my experience would be 95% brilliant. And 5% disappointing. So it's it's a pretty good world to be in.
0: Just like the general population, you get the good and the bad. Now, Brian, any white whales of celebrities or athletes that you would love to meet in person?
1: <laughs> well, yeah, you know, I got to think. Like in my world, which is a, primarily a hockey world, I have met most of the guys that I, all the big stars throughout the past and present that I have loved. I had even experienced before I was even in the business, sitting at a blackjack table talking to a woman uh, next to me in the afternoon when I was too young to play. But that's when the mob ran Vegas, and my dad told them that uh, he's he's twenty one, and so they let me play. And I hit it off with this woman. Then all of a sudden, this big man comes walking in after a pro am golf tournament, sits down. She introduced him. It was Ray Nitschke. And then five minutes later, Bill Russell walks in, taps him on the shoulder, talks to all of us for 10 minutes and moves on. And then Mickey Mantle comes in and he sits at the table with us and he's playing cards. And I'm literally sitting between Ray Nitschke and Mickey Mantle playing blackjack. So that was a thrill. And the other thrill that I have was when Wayne Gretzky's company uh, was in place, WG Authentic, I got a call from Mike Brown who ran it and said, you want to get down to Phoenix? I said, what do you got going? He says, we're doing a signing with Muhammad Ali. I said, are you kidding me? This is when he was passed, and he was kind of sick uh, with Parkinson's, I think it was, but he was still doing autograph signings, and he said, we're doing an exclusive signing. He said, would you like to be there? I said, I'm on the next plane, and I literally sat next to Muhammad Ali and helped with the autograph signing. So I don't think you get much bigger than that. That was the biggest thrill. Even though he couldn't really speak, there was still that glint in his eye that you knew his mind was still sharp. And I remember um, they brought out some cookies and I said, would you like a cookie? And I handed him a cookie and he had a bite. And I said, pretty good, eh? And he, go, and he just, you know, as much as he could smile and a glint in his eye, big, big thrill. So I, I'm sure there's somebody I haven't thought about, but I'm pretty blessed with the, the sports celebrities that I've met over the years and, Pinch myself. and And frankly, even in this business, you never get over it. People say, "Oh, yeah, you know, it's just old hat. I'll meet Wayne uh, Friday afternoons for lunch, and he's a friend. He calls me from time to time. I call him from time to time. And every time I'm with him, I just you know, you get you just get this blessed feeling that you're with one of the greatest of all
0: time, and it's an incredible an incredible experience. Definitely, pinch me moments. Now, on that note, in my day as a kid, I would write a letter to my favorite Toronto Maple Leaf and mail it to them, care of Maple Leaf Gardens. And if luck was on my side, I would get back a signed eight by ten photo. Brian, what is your advice to the ten-year-old boys and girls out there that want an autograph from their favorite Toronto Maple Leaf?
1: It's a whole different world now. Back in the day, the public relations guy at any team would. Uh pass on the autographs to the players and they would sit down because it was that was really the only signing that they did other than when they met somebody in the street or at a restaurant. But now they have so many obligations to do signings. Like even Sidney is asked to sit down for charitable purposes uh, once or twice a year to sign for the Pittsburgh Penguins Foundation. All the players are. And so they got to do that and he's doing my thing and then just to sign. But in the old days players would do that for you. And you could just send the stuff to the players. So some of the guys still do that. But because it's been a business now,
0: um, it's harder. Well, times have definitely changed. Ryan, you've been great with your time. As we wrap up, I want to give you a chance to give a shout out any interesting memorabilia projects you're currently working on at Framework.
1: Yes, right now we're doing something with, well, we've got some new product coming out with Sidney Crosby. If you if you like what you hear and you want to learn more, we're going to start on our Instagram building of followers, as I mentioned, with opportunities to possibly sit in on a, um, a uh, Sidney Crosby signing somewhere down the line. If you're following Framework Sport on uh, Instagram, uh, you have to follow to have a chance at that. We've got some new product that's going to be launched on Instagram that we just did with Sydney. We're trying not to do open editions anymore. So there's a limited amount of any new product, and when it's done, it's done. And so that's more for the collectors. But there's going to be some giveaways on Instagram and Facebook. So, um, yeah, if you want to follow along, uh, you'll have that opportunity
0: to, um, to take part in all that. And, of course, anyone interested should go to frameworth.com. Ryan, I want to thank you for your time. It was great to meet you. Great to hear some of your stories. It's amazing how much your whole industry has changed. And of course, uh, I want to wish you continued success. Thanks, Andrew. It's been a pleasure. It's been my pleasure to have you. And to the listeners, on behalf of Brian Ehrenworth, I am Andrew Applebaum saying thanks for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast.